Welcome to the Money Insights Podcast, where high income earners come to learn wealth building strategies that will take them from high income to high net worth. With your hosts, financial and wealth building experts, Christian Allen and Rod Zabriskie. Welcome into another episode of the Money Insights Podcast, the alternative wealth building podcast for high income earners. My name's Christian Allen. He is Rodney, the pod Zabriskie. Rod, what's up, man? Hey, I'm doing great. I'm excited for another one. The other he is Blake, never takes a break, Brogan. Blake, three in a row. Welcome back, my friend. I have nothing. I'm excited to be here. Trifecta. Trifecta. Three hey, in a row feels yes. great. This is the, I'm going to call it the deadly duo. I'm just here to watch. Okay, <laughs> so we are in part three of this marathon life insurance series, which again, just when you say it that way, sounds like so much fun. Um, but I have a feeling, I have a feeling people are going to get something from this. So this time, this uh, in part three, we're going to jump into the lightning rod topic that is the infinite banking concept. So before I get into any of that, who wants to go through all of the various names that they can think of for Infinite banking. I didn't write them down, so it's got to be off the top of your head. A bank on yourself. Cash flow banking. Becoming your own bank. Family banking. And Uh, asset. Perpetual wealth strategy. Did we catch all of them? No. We probably didn't. It's probably just getting started. (laughs) Yeah, you're probably right. There's probably like 15 other variations or more. Okay, so but basically, if you see anything with banking in it, it's it's likely has some connectivity to um, infinite banking, which was basically came from um, our good friend Nelson Nash, who's no longer with us, but wrote the book that basically sparked the rest of this banking revolution, we'll call it. Uh, thank you, Nelson Nash. I will say this. I do not subscribe to Nelson Nash's book in most ways. However, in one very important way, I do. And that is that I very much love highly overfunded cash value life insurance because it has a lot of powerful purposes, which we'll get into. But right now we want to focus really like be laser focused on infinite banking. So, Rod, this is all you, man. Talk about, give us an overview of what the infinite banking concept is. And then Blake, you get a chance to kind of fill in whatever we, whatever Rod misses. Okay. So I'm going to start at the beginning with Nelson Nash. And basically what he did is he said he he knew whole life really well, how to, how to build it, how to, how to overfund it, how to get the most into the cash value uh, so that then you could use it. And he said, okay, well, if I'm going to use it for anything, I might as well use it for everything. So uh, in other words, I put money into the into my policy and then I'm going to take loans against my policy to, again, do everything. I'm going to pay my bills. I'm going to uh, buy my cars. I'm going to go on vacations, all of this thing. And it's better because... If instead I'm taking my paycheck and, and setting it into my checking account and then paying my bills out of that, well, the checking account is inefficient compared to the growth that we can create, this five plus percent tax-free return that I can create in the, in the policy as a starter. And then secondly, when I loan against it, I'm creating a, an interest rate arbitrage. In other words, the interest that I'm paying on the loan is lower than the interest that I'm always earning inside of my cash value of my policy. And so even if it was just that, just the fact of having a loan against my policy, that by itself is creating more wealth for me because of that interest rate arbitrage. So basically it's like using the investment optimizer, like we focus on it for investments, but it's just like, trying to accomplish something similar, except with, you know, things like spending money on a vacation. Yeah. I'm not sure how you're going to get the same value back out of the vacation, but the, but the point is you do the same thing. And from my understanding, it is all based on lost opportunity cost, which by the way, is a really great concept and a really ridiculous one all at the same time. So (laughs) 
Lost opportunity cost. Blake, what's lost opportunity cost? Basically, everyone knows if you're financing something, you're going to pay interest on that. But on the flip side of the coin, if you pay cash for something, let's just take a car, for example, you go pay 30,000 bucks and pay cash for that. The cost to you is not just the $30,000 that you paid for the car, but also what that 30,000 could have grown to had you not paid for that car in cash. So there's financing costs, whether you're paying, you know, paying interest to someone else, but there's also that lost opportunity cost of what your money could have grown to if you, if you spend cash now. And I think there's a lot of good applications to that. And there's some really bad ones. I'll give you a quick example. So let's say that you are trying to decide for your kid's Christmas, whether you want to get them X, Y, Z thing. And it's like $20 more than the other thing. And you're like, ah, you know what? I'm, I'm thinking about the lost opportunity cost. If I spend that $20 on my kid here, that could earn 12% year in and year out in the market. Just ask Dave Ramsey. And by doing that, I've lost like maybe millions of dollars, at least hundreds of thousands by spending that extra 20 bucks. So that's where, and, and can I just tell you, it feels like some people get that deep into it. Right, oh, talk sure. about how, Talk about the connectivity of infinite banking to lost opportunity cost. Yeah, I mean, if you're um, if you're using that inefficient checking account to to capture your money and then pay your bills, you have days of each month between. So if you if you get paid on the whatever the fifth of the month, and that money lands in your account, but you don't spend that money. Your your mortgage doesn't come due until the 25th of the month. You have 20 days of that $1,500, $2,000, whatever your mortgage payment is, where it's just sitting there earning next to nothing. Whereas if instead you take that money and you immediately drop it into your life insurance policy, where now it's earning the guaranteed interest and creating this compounding growth now and forever, you're you're now capturing something. So so the the example that Blake gave, I'm I'm instead of not earning anything, my opportunity cost if I use the checking account is that I'm not getting that five plus percent tax free growth on on that money f- for the twenty days to begin with, and then when I do pay my mortgage, I take a loan against my policy to to pay the mortgage, but because my cash value stays complete, I loaned against it, right? I didn't take that money back out of my cash value. It now stays there and continues to grow and is creating this interest rate arbitrage because we're always paying less on our loan than what we're earning in our cash value. Okay. Okay. Well stated. So maybe the next question, at least what's coming to my mind, let's do this. Let's talk about what we like about the concept and then we'll poke some holes in some things that we're not so excited about. So when you guys think about the infinite banking concept, you're talking to clients, um, they bring it up to you. What are like the commonalities? What are the things that you would say we like about it? Well, yeah, one of the first thing that comes to mind is people maintaining control over their personal finance and investing strategy. I think, you know, you listen to a lot of mainstream advice and it's basically put your money in Wall Street. It's all going to grow for you. You're going to live a happy retirement your kids are going to inherit millions of dollars because that thing just compounds to the moon every year and never goes down, uh, which we know is probably not going to happen that easily. So what I like about the infinite banking stuff is that, hey, put you here. You have more control. Be a little bit. I feel like it triggers the entrepreneurial part of people's brain. OK, now I have cash value. What should I be doing with this? That's one thing that I, I do like about it. I think that's great. It's like, yeah, that's a really good one. I wasn't even thinking about that. It's like. There is a philosophical difference between generally people that are saying, hey, I want to go about my finances in this way, right? They've kind of most often at least seen that there might be other ways to consider getting there besides socking money into 401ks and IRAs and hoping the market performs. Um, So I love that one. That's a really good one. What else do you guys like about it? It's uh, it's a system. So... It kind of creates this, a, a lot of people like the idea of a forced savings and, and 401ks. Again, that's, that's an, one of the, one of the kind of talking points about the 401k. It's like, Hey, take the money out of your check before you even, before it even lands in your account. And 
in this case, you're kind of creating a similar situation where it's like, hey, they may not be able to make a direct deposit from your from your employer to to the insurance policy. But if you're just building it like clockwork, it just comes out. The, the money lands on the fifth. The, you, you tell the insurance company to pull it back out on the sixth, and and so now it's just it's in the system, and so you're just you're systematizing this this kind of wealth building model. Yeah, and then maybe the the biggest, most obvious one, maybe maybe not at least to me, but it's this, just the fact that we have clearly stated that we like high cash value life insurance mm-hmm. in, and we're going to talk about whether we use or what type of life insurance we use with the infinite banking concept. But um, it's almost to me, like we back into a lot of like good benefits, right? Like, again, it's the things that we talk about with high cash value life insurance. We're getting, um, you know, a, a good return. We're getting some asset protection, some death benefit. Like we're, potentially getting long-term. So we're just like, we're getting a bunch of these benefits, right? And and we just, we may not have even been trying to get those benefits, I guess, right? So mm-hmm. the good news is, is someone that's like actively or like bought in and is working toward it, it's like, it's pretty easy to like bring it back just a notch or two and say like, okay, here's the things that are really good that you're already doing Here's the things that we could adjust and change that could, you know, become problematic either now or in the future. That's what we're going to talk about next. Okay. So um, is there anything else uh, that comes to mind in infinite banking that you guys just love and want to hit on? Okay. I think the crickets suggest that we've, <laughs> we've touched on all the positives. Okay. So what are the things that we don't like? Maybe what are the problems? Actually, no, yeah, let's do it that way. We're going to get into the problems and then we're going to get into what type. Okay, so what are the problems that you guys are seeing with infinite banking and just your experience out there in the field? And I know we'll get more into the details on some of these, but more philosophically, one of the things I don't like is when I hear pe- you know, people present it or read the book, a lot of times I think that people think the policy in and of itself is the wealth creator. So just by moving money in and out of this policy you're be, you're going to become wealthy just because you have that and you've adopted this system, um, and really, you know, our clients and and people who u- utilize these strategies, the wealth, the major wealth creation is is what you're actually using the capital to go out and do and create higher rates of return, mm. whether that be in your investment or your business. Now, is is putting the money through a policy first going to be beneficial? Absolutely, right? And we teach that. We love that. But the wealth creation is is in what you're doing in business or in investing, not necessarily in just moving money in and out of the policy. Mm, that's a great point. And I think that's when I, again, watching the videos, the YouTube videos out there, like, I think that's one of the main things that people are just missing. They're missing that conversation and trying to emphasize the policy, overemphasize the policy and are underemphasizing the things that we can go out and create, right? Like, as an organization, we help people utilize policies to magnify the things that they're already doing or that they want to be doing from an investment perspective. To your point, like that's really where wealth is created. I love it. Um, okay. And that is a huge problem because that is, it's overemphasized. Can I, can I add just one story to that? I oh. mean, I've been working with someone recently and and he was not an alternative in, investor, but he learned about the strategy, kind of liked it. And as we continue down the conversations, it kind of became clear that this strategy might not be beneficial for him in the sense that he just was not used to alternative investing. He had no ideas what he would be doing with the money. Mm. The things that he was doing already were working well. And so we ended up basically not doing any business. And And we may come back and do it later as he's starting to research different things, but it's not you know, we weren't just saying just because you have this tool, you're going to be better. It's more of like, what is the plan once we have that that tool set up that's going to help you create more wealth? So, yeah, that's a really good point. I love it. Yeah. Now, I'm going to take the flip side of kind of what Blake is saying, just, just to be really clear, because there might be some people listening to this and they're like, wait a minute, I'm really confused about these guys. What's the difference between investment optimizer and infinite banking and and you know, yeah, it, it's really, you, you kind of hit, hit on it a little bit there, Blake, but it's the difference between using the policy for, I'll call it consumer spending 
versus using the policy for investing and creating value out there somewhere. Be- and and it, it may sound like a small difference, but but really when you think about it, it's a huge difference. In other words, if I'm using my policy to go on vacation and to buy my cars and these other things, I'm not saying you can't do that because you can clearly, right? You, you take a loan from your policy, you can use it for whatever you want. But when I do that, the, when I first heard, learned about, uh, about infinite banking, um, I read the Bank on Yourself book. And when basically she painted this picture of you put money in the policy, and then she gave an example of going on a trip to Europe. So you have the money in the policy, you take a loan against that. And it's much better than, than just putting it on your credit card, which I'm totally in agreement with. But then when you, after you get back from your trip, then you're little by little paying down that loan that you took to, to go on this trip. And the, the piece that I had a really hard time with was, was I'm still putting money like new premium, new money going into my policy, filling the bucket. And I'm coming back and, and paying down the loans for what, when I went out and spent it, I'm like, where's all that money coming from? I, I, I couldn't put the pieces together to say, we're like somewhere out there. I have to be creating additional value. I felt like I had to go get a second job so that I could do both. Do you know what I mean? Right. Cause you're saying the issue is that the value creation in that sense, if I'm using that system, isn't from using the money to get a return that it doesn't do anything, right? It's that's yeah. the opposite. That's a, cons- that's a consumer situation. The value is coming because you come up with extra money in your world more to income. put more money into the policy. I remember I remember going through this and just, okay, so you brought up the first time you heard about it. The first time I heard about infinite banking, I was, this is great. I was, uh, I was eight or I was, uh, I, it was 18, 19 years ago. I had just freshly gotten into the business and I started when I just barely got into it. I started with Primerica. I've told people my mm-hmm. story, right? So I'm a, I'm a term guy, term all the way. That's it. It's term or die, literally. Okay, so, yeah. so, I I go into my I, I I go into visit with my my sister, uh, my brother brother in law and sister, and they're telling me about this thing that they were pitched, and it's this bank on yourself thing, and I'm like I'm looking through it, and and like I was just like this is like, this is like the worst thing ever. Like I couldn't even tell you how disgusted I was, and to be honest with you. The thought that came to my mind, and I think that it still is that it's just softened, but it it's more or less a uh, marketing strategy, right? Mm-hmm. Because here's the deal: if you think that you're becoming like a bank by doing bank on yourself, you're just not, right? There's some like small philosophical things that 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 we pluck out, but what ends up happening is, is this, the bank on yourself crowd. They go and they, you know, they go into this big pitch about how this is how banks work. This is how they do things. And then they make it seem as though you're suddenly working like a bank. But guess what? We can't use fractional reserve banking to our benefit like the bank does. So guess what? It doesn't even do us any good to know what that is. I don't know why they keep teaching it. But what we can do is we can use the the cash value that's gotten a better return, that's replaced a you know, our opportunity fund to go out and create more value. And that's, and that's like real, I guess what I'm saying is it's not Mm -hmm. hype. Like obviously we market the investment optimizer because it works. um, But we really try to take out all of the like messy stuff that just doesn't work. That's less important and focus in on the value proposition. And to your point, Blake, the value that we can help people with is helping them understand how to go and create more money, create better returns, particularly in the alternative investment space, taking control of their own money, moving or or transitioning at least somewhat from that traditional world. And we know by doing that, they're going to create huge a huge amount of additional value. What we're not saying is that by coming over and having a policy, suddenly you've like arrived at this place, right? It's a small part of what the what really successful people do to create and build wealth. Ooh, yeah. Okay. So maybe uh, maybe breaking that down a little bit and saying, okay, therefore what, right? Like we've we've thrown these ideas about consumer spending versus investing and things like that. So to me, what the infinite banking does is it it 
it's like taking it too far, right? If, if you're saying, hey, put your paycheck in there into your policy, that's how we build your, your premium is because whatever your net of taxes and or monthly amount is, we're just going to drop that into your policy. Then that, there's a huge problem. There, there are several problems with that. But again, number one is if I'm putting that into new premium all the time, then how am I ever paying down the loans? And they might say, don't ever pay down the loans. Just let them, let them roll because of that arbitrage in the interest mm-hmm. rate, which we'll get mm-hmm. into here. We're in going to get bit. into that. Okay. Um, but then secondly, here's another, you know, to me, it, it feels an awful lot like the people who say, put all of your extra cash paying down your home. Because again, not that that's not a bad, not that, not that that's a bad idea in and of itself, but at the very least, what it doesn't do is account for the what ifs of life. So if I'm setting, if I'm set up to put all of my paycheck into my premium all the time, what happens if I lose my job or if I get downsized or, or whatever, right? Like I've, I've built this and okay. Yes. We, we build it with what we call a funding range or some flexibility in how much I have to put in each, each month. But if I'm out of work for six months and number one, that's my, uh, my backup, my emergency fund. Oh, but I would, but I've been loaning against it to go out and pay all my bills and go on vacations and buy my cars. And, and now I don't have money to put, put into as, as new premium. All of a sudden like the company's like, Hey, where's your, where's at least this base minimum premium that, that you have to pay. Then it, it just all, all of a sudden it can, it can blow up on you with, with kind of this relatively small, very realistic example of, of losing, losing your job for a few months. Yeah. And, and so I think that's where it gets a bad name, right? When you have situations and stories, or we've talked about this, like mm-hmm. just like the, the doctor who was sold um, a whole life policy that they couldn't really afford at the time. It was a minimum base premium. They find, you know, six years, seven years later that they don't have anywhere near as much cash in it as they thought they should. And suddenly they're like, I've been ripped off. Right. Mm -hmm. The same thing ends up happening here. It's I've done all these things. This little thing went wrong. It blew up. I had put X, Y, Z amount of premium into it that just went out the door. Suddenly life insurance is a ripoff. Whole life is bad. And that's, that's where it all starts. Right. Yeah. Okay. I want to get into, uh, I want to make sure we get into all of the problems I've got listed. Okay. So, uh, I, I believe it's oversold to people who can't afford it yet. So I do think that there's a base premium or like a, a premium minimum that people who are attempting to work in that space should be, you should have some level of financial stability at the very least. If you don't have that, Jumping into infinite banking is just a terrible idea and it has a high probability of failure. Um, we talked about trying to do too much. I mentioned it's nothing like a bank. Um, I think there's a problem when it spills into IUL. We're going to get into that in a minute. Um, and I say specifically when it get, spills into IUL, without the proper education and planning, I think that caveat's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other one is, is that <laughs> this one's funny. Okay, I, I was listening to one of these videos just recently and they were like, and this was actually someone who was more on our side on this. They were they were more saying like infinite banking just takes things too far. There's some good elements, but takes things too far. And the exa- one of the examples they gave was a, a policy that had 99 transactions in a singular month. In a oh, singular yikes. month. Can I just tell you, from my experience, life insurance companies are not structured set up administratively to be flowing money in and out of a policy like there's some there's some companies that are further along and they're better at it but the the reality is is it's not like a bank account mm-hmm. and when it starts being structured like that it becomes problematic and well in a lot of ways but i would say my experience is life insurance companies don't like it and they're not good at it and so it can become problematic if i'm trying to be overly transactional if I'm taking, you know, a couple a month or like, like there's flow, there's flow that needs to happen and make sense, but it just becomes excessive inside of infinite banking. Again, especially if you're putting your paycheck in and you're suddenly using it to pay different bills, like it's just, just a little too chaotic. Um, and I, from my experience, that's where one of the places that I've seen it fail. Well, and we've seen that okay. even just 
you know, there's been insurance companies in in the last couple of years. One specifically that that you would probably recognize the name that put out a letter, you know, to agents saying basically we don't want any quote unquote banking business because they were getting overwhelmed with th- situations like that, and they're saying we're not a we're not a bank, right? We're an insurance company, and yet you know we have people hitting us up for 99 transactions in a month, and we're just not built to. To process that, so I, I feel like even from the insurance company side, they're saying, in, you know, some companies embrace it more than others, as you mentioned, and some are built for that a little bit better. But at the end of the day, they want to be clear that they are not a bank and don't want to be treated like a bank necessarily. Yep, and you're right. It it, it does scare people. It does scare companies off. The more that happens, um, I've seen more than one company in my time put out you know, information about not specifically not wanting to do infinite banking business. The most recent one, Mass Mutual, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, okay. So let's jump into the the question of whether to use IUL or whole life. We've just been talking about infinite banking. Here's the deal. And let me set the stage. There are two sides to this camp. There's the whole Surprise. life truthers, the <laughs> Nelson Nashers. There's the, we've talked about the IUL versus whole life debate. We're going to now bring that into infinite banking. Um, but the whole life crowd would tell you that using it for like using an IUL with uh, infinite banking is an absolute disaster for a bunch of reasons. We'll get into that. The other side would tell you that you're not up with the times you're missing out on huge opportunity. If you're using whole life, it's interest that you would have been getting. And really, you know, it's it's just a s- stupid old school idea. That's kind of what I've gotten from it. Okay. So the question is, where do we stand on this? And maybe maybe we'll get it b- before we get into where, where do we stand on it. Let's talk about what the benefits. Well, okay, actually, Rod, why don't you just lay it out there? How do we use it and why? And then uh, Blake and I can fill in some gaps. Yeah. So uh, specifically with the investment optimizer, we we put it out there with whole life. Any any If you've seen any of our videos, you've heard us talk about on the podcast, we put it out there and we always describe it as using whole life. And so we'll sometimes get the question, well, what about IUL? Can I not use IUL? And the answer is you can. The answer is you're building a cash value, you can loan against that cash value, and you can flow the money in and out of your investments in the same way as you do on the whole life. So the answer is it can be done. We just have to understand what the differences are, and they're basically summarized as just two or three points. Number one, the amount of money I have access to when I loan against my whole life policy compared to my IUL is a little bit different. Whole life has a lot more guarantees, a lot more predictability in the growth. And so I can get a, it's about 95% of what I have in my cash value is what I can get in the form of a loan. On the IUL side, it's usually about 85 to 90, depending on who the lender is. Okay. And so, can I also add to that? And maybe you were getting there, so I don't mean to still thunder, but I'm just going yeah. to Rod. Many times, uh, Universal Life has a surrender charge, surrender yes. periods on it. So if I go into that and like, there are riders that I can use to like eliminate that, right? But mm-hmm. sometimes it'll drag the policy down overall. So yeah. like one of the elements here is that most IULs, and at least if the, the higher performing long-term ones are almost all going to have some sort of surrender penalty, which just means I have access to less of that money. And it could be, you know, a period of like 10 years where I get more access each year. But if I'm wanting to take money immediately to go invest, well, I don't want to have access to only 50% of my cash value, right? right? I want to have access to as much of it as I possibly can. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, we'll call that point number two. And then point number three is the... Well, the whole reason for for why they offer less is because on IUL, you just have less predictability on a year-to-year basis. And and admittedly, it would take, uh, I don't know, Great Depression, uh, dot-com busts type of two, three, five, four years in a row where the market is down in order to, to create this scenario. But let me ask you this. If I'm buying the policy and I'm 
40, 50, even 60 years old, I'm going to have it for the next 30, 40, 50 years. What are the chances of something like that happening? Well, they're probably pretty good. So if you're using IUL as your policy in the investment optimizer, then you just have to be a little more aware, a little more um, paying a little more attention to what's going on with the underlying policy. So if I was asked, okay, well, why then do you lead with whole life? And IUL is kind of like an afterthought if somebody brings it up. And the answer is the very consistent, predictable growth means that when I'm taking loans against it, I don't have to worry about that underlying asset, what's happening with it on a year-to-year basis. It just, it's going to grow. I know how it's going to grow. I don't have to worry about that. Secondly, I don't have to worry about surrender charges. I don't have to worry about uh, having access to less cash as a percentage of what I have there, et cetera. So now going back to what you said earlier, Christian, the fact is, because IUL can be used, there are people out there who would want to use it. Like they look at the the facts and they say, okay, I get all of what you're saying, but I still like this higher upside opportunity that I get with IUL. So I want to use it for my, for my investment optimizer policy. And if that's the case, then I have no problem with that. You know what I would say? I would say, and you, you basically said something similar to this, but if you are going to use an IUL to go out and invest money through, you've got to keep more cash in it. Mm-hmm. Like that's yep. kind of, you've just got to have a bigger reserve and understand that because in a given year, right, I could get a 0% return. I could still have cost on the policy. I could have some negative potential arbitrage in, in my loan rates. Like there's things that could happen that could negatively impact that I have to be prepared for. And so therefore, what do I do? Just like most things can be solved by carrying more cash, that's that's how you do it, right? Yep. But there's an opportunity cost there too, right? Because if I've got to carry more cash there, that means that there's less money that I'm going out and producing, which again, going back to your point, Blake, the best place that we see people creating um, wealth is in things like their business, real estate, you know, the alternative asset space. Like that's where people are generating the most wealth without question. And if I've got to keep more money there again, it's lost opportunity cost on a small level. Um, okay, that's ooh. so. Uh, I, where do we want to go next? I think that's helpful on on the investment optimizer side. Now let's bring it back mm-hmm. to infinite banking. So if I'm okay. if I'm being told use those loans for everything you're going to create this interest rate arbitrage. Well, let's let's expound on that a little bit more because if I'm using IUL, on average, am I going to create higher interest rate arbitrage? Probably. I, I believe that, right? Clearly with our capital avalanche. Yeah, yeah, we believe that's cetera, true. We, we think that that's going to happen. Uh, but, but again, in those shorter timeframes, if I'm putting the money in and taking the loans, 99 transactions or whatever, to uh, to pay my bills and do all of this, and I'm I'm basically tapping out or maxing out my available loans, and then <clears throat> again I have these timeframes where uh, the market's struggling and or I'm struggling, then not only am I not creating the interest rate arbitrage in that year because if the market's down and I don't get an interest rate credit to my account, but I still have interest accruing on my loan, then I have to come up with that out of pocket. Or be, yeah, so be you've lost to, like you said. the return. You've lost the the actual. Uh, so you've got no return in that. You've had cost of the policy, but you've actually lost money because you've been borrowing against it. And now I, you know, and and by the way, like let's just let's just say overall, like and this is a difficult. Well, I'm not going to get into interest rate arbitrage, but I think that's an element that goes back to infinite banking, where they're counting on this being like the the wealth creator. So back mm-hmm. to our point, Blake's point, the wealth creator is not that. This is like the accentuator of wealth that creates wealth. And, and even inside the, the capital avalanche, like just by putting cash into a policy, like that in and of itself is not going to create amazing mm-hmm. wealth, right? Like it's powerful. It can be, it can be a tool, but what's really creating wealth in the capital avalanche is like the additional leverage that we're creating mm-hmm. on top of a really solid, solidly built asset, right? We compare it to real estate for a lot of reasons. Um, 
Okay. Uh, Can I, I, I think I do want to hit a little bit on the interest rate arbitrage, even going okay. back to just use this opportunity to go back even on the whole life policy and, and maybe blow up a little bit of what, what the infinite bankers are, are doing or, or saying, or at least the message well, that they're putting out remember, there. Remember, Rod, we got to get into direct and non-direct. And, and this will so lead us into this that. A pre, okay, this is a good prequel. Yes. Love yes. it. Because they're telling you, you will always get a higher return in your policy than what you're paying in interest on the loan. But the problem is interest rates just went up over the last year and a half. So if I'm earning whatever, the, the company is paying five and a half percent, well, the, a lot of the companies that are using are not even paying, are paying that 5.3%. But now the interest rate on my loan is 6%. I don't know about you, but now I'm upside down. I'm I'm losing. Not exciting to borrow on the, in that situation, no. right? And so if I've spent the last 10, 15, 20 years building up this cash value, it's now $500,000 and I have a $470,000 loan against that. And I'm counting, I'm banking on this interest rate arbitrage working in my favor. Then a lot of people are coming to a hard reality right now that a shift in interest rates makes it so that you're not all necessarily always getting that in, that positive arbitrage. That's a super important point. And we hit on this earlier a little bit, but life insurance is going to lag slightly behind where interest rates are going, right? So in a declining interest rate environment, we saw life insurance rates like be higher than most of that time. And, he, and over the long term, they will certainly beat interest rates. Like it's designed to do that, but it's it's going to lag behind it. So to your point now, Rod, and this is going to take us into direct and non-direct. Mm -hmm. If that's been your plan, you're again you're potentially upside down because now the loan rate is higher than what you're actually getting credited, and that becomes especially problematic if you're in a non-direct recognition situation. So this is where this is what Rod. This is the story you've been saying. You've been telling the story for like ten years. Um, and it's, it's been like, you know, pounding the javel at it. And yet, like, I don't think that many people believed it because interest rates were just always in favor mm -hmm. of non-direct being a little bit more mm -hmm. advantageous in that given situation. Right. Yep. So, but now we're in a situation where that's no longer the case. Okay. Well, who wants to, to describe to point, though? I think infinite banking in the, the book, the Nelson Nash book was written from my understanding, like 20 years ago or so. Now, maybe late late nineties, early two thousands, and since that time, interest rates have only been declining, right? Up until eighteen months ago, or or whenever. So, for the longest time, basically all of infinite banking's history, it has been beneficial to be in the non direct, and you can preach this interest rate arbitrage. But as you guys are mentioning, you know the tide is turning on that here more recently. Mm -hmm. Not only is the tide turning, but it was never that big of a deal to begin with. So one of the things that Rod and I did as we were you know, trying to determine how we would build policies, what company we would use, is we basically looked at the value proposition that I get from having potentially a lower performing cash back. Because here's what's happened. The direct, the non-direct recognition companies in general are not performing as well as the direct recognition companies, right? So if that's the case, then I have to look at it and say, is it more important for me to have non-direct? Oh gosh, I should, we should be describing what this is. Yeah, yeah. We? You know, okay, let's back, let's back it up and we'll get back to that point. Rod, go yeah. over direct and non-direct recognition just so we have some context and then I'll bring that point back into it. Yes. Okay. So now let's, let's put everybody in the place of the insurance company. Okay. And we, we've been very clear about with, with whether it's infinite banking, whether it's the investment optimizer, when we are building a highly overfunded max, uh, <laughs> max overfunded life insurance, whole life policy, we are picky. We only want to use mutual life insurance companies, right? We talked about this in the last one. And the reason is because a mutual life insurance company, the policyholders become owners and therefore they receive a dividend. We want that dividend. That's a big part of the, the growth. So right now, the guaranteed interest rate is about 3% typically for, for these policies. The total between guaranteed interest and dividend is around 
we say five to 6%, right? And we are, again, so that's why we're picky on the mutual life insurance companies. But now as the company, when they're saying, okay, but we have, we're giving people the opportunity to take loans against the cash value. So the question is, when I have, when, when I, as the insurance company, am making this loan, how do I treat the cash value that's collateralizing that loan? Because on the one hand, if I just continue to give them the same in guaranteed interest and dividend rate, then I'm kind of penalizing the people who aren't taking loans. They're getting a, a little extra benefit because they get the loan and they get the full guaranteed interest and dividend. So the the companies that that kind of have taken that view have said, okay, instead of just continuing to give them guaranteed interest and dividend on the portion of the cash value that's collateralizing the loan, instead, we're going to give them, we're going to calculate their growth differently. We're going to make it direct, directly linked to the interest rate that they're paying on their loan. So, and this is a big misnomer. If you've heard people talk about direct versus non-direct, and you heard them say, oh, but you don't earn anything on the cash value if you're on a direct recognition. I'm about to give you some some clarity on this because the fact is you are continuing to earn interest on the collateralized portion of your cash value. They're just calculating it differently. Again, linked to the to loan rate. So they say, what are you paying on the loan rate directly dictates what you're going to earn on that portion of the cash value that's now collateralizing your loan. Because we don't want to penalize people who aren't using loans. We want to make create a direct relationship for people who are who are having these loans and have it make sense financially inside of the company. Okay, so, so that's direct. Yes, so direct recognition. Okay, well, let then before I get into my part, go into non-direct. Yeah. So on the on the flip side, there are, then there are companies who say, yeah, we don't care. We don't care uh, if it negatively impacts policyholders who are not taking loans. We just want to keep it simple. Your cash value always earns the guaranteed interest and dividend. It doesn't matter whether you have a loan against it or not. You have the whatever the hundred thousand dollars in your cash value. You took a sixty thousand dollar loan. Your hundred thousand continues to earn the guaranteed interest and dividend, no matter what. Okay, Blake, talk about how the whole lifers, the Nelson Nashers, how they feel about direct versus non-direct. Well, yeah, maybe they certainly have an opinion. And that's, we want to <laughs> avoid, avoid using direct recognition basically as much as possible. So I, you know, I've heard them say, no know, matter what, no matter what, <laughs> no matter what. Um, but, the, you know, I've heard people say like, I'll use a direct recognition policy only if basically all the non-direct recognition ones aren't taking the business or whatever the case may be. So yeah, it, yeah, it's yeah. like the ultimate backstop would be using a uh, non-direct. And it's <laughs> like, like, holy smokes, this is <laughs> and like, it, you've really got to be going off the reservation. Like you have a chance of getting kicked out of the Nelson Nash. Uh, he, I think he actually still has an organization, but you could oh, get yeah, kicked for sure. out for doing something. And by the way, like if you even like, if they even see that you're like sniffing at an IUL, it's an automatic Ooh. out. So just remember, if you're getting in the Nelson Nash Club, those two things are huge no-nos. Okay, keep going, Blake. Yeah, so they they would say things like, why would we ever use a direct recognition when it's going to impact our dividend, right? No matter what, we're using this strategy to flow money in and out, and we don't want our dividends affected at all. So we're just going to stick down the non-direct route. Now, a c- couple things on that. You know, from our perspective, again, we're looking at not necessarily just philosophically what do we want, but we're looking at what policies are going to create the most value for us personally, as well as our clients, right? And Rod, you mentioned that point where if you're only using non-direct companies, then you might be missing out on the on the companies that are creating the most cash value right now. So just by eliminating, you know, a portion of the companies, you could be missing out on some value. Secondly, I want to add one point to the, to the direct recognition. If you own a direct recognition policy, there may be times that you can essentially turn it into a non-direct recognition policy and do that by utilizing loans from a bank. So as opposed to, we've talked about taking loans from the insurance company to go do whatever you're going to do with it. You also have the ability to 
um, borrow or set up essentially a line of credit, use your cash value, set up a line of credit, just like a HELOC, but you're the, the, the cash value, the policy is what's serving as collateral, and then go get a line of credit from a bank and flow money in and out of that side. When you do it that way, though, the insurance company, all their funds are still there. And so they're treating it like a non-direct policy. Now, the infinite bankers I've also heard would say, well, we don't want to do that because one of their kind of tenets or pillars is to not do business with banks, right? So the whole reason for them <laughs> to set this up is to say, we want to, you know, get out of the bank. Yeah, we're the bank. We're the bank, right? So why, Privatize would, you, why would you ever go to a, a bank, right? Now that you've set this policy up, you have control. Um, and I will I will add one caveat to their credit. One of the, I think one of the benefits of, of just using policy loans is that you as the consumer, as the policy owner, you have total control over when or really even if you repay mm -hmm. that loan. So when you take a loan, the, the idea of becoming your own banker makes sense to me in the sense that if I take a loan from an insurance company, I am able to dictate to them when I'm going to repay that interest or really even if I'm going to repay that interest at all. Whereas if I go to a bank and get a mortgage or get a car note or whatever, I am, you know, they're going to require monthly payments back to them, at least for interest or, or however it's set up. So from sure. that perspective, I will say, you know, you do have more control and that can work out really well for the investment optimizer. If you're utilizing these policies and loans to go out and make an investment, let's say that investment stops kicking off cash flow for a portion, it's a really big benefit to have that control. But getting back to the direct recognition versus non, they're going to say, don't use direct recognition at all, where we would say, Direct recognition can be an advantage in the sense that during low interest rate environments, we could always turn it into a non-direct recognition policy, essentially by utilizing a, a line of credit. And then in that environment where interest rates are going up very quickly and dividends necessarily haven't you know, responded to that yet, you could be in a much better situation in certain periods having that direct recognition. And let's talk about the certain periods because- the because inevitably the, the question is okay well if, if you're great thanks for the education on on what it is but i just want to know which one's better just tell me which one's better and then i'll know how to go well the certain periods thing that that yeah. tells us right okay if interest rates are going up direct recognition is better because if i'm if i'm having to pay more and more interest on my loan well i also want to be earning more and more on my policy as a direct result in other words, if the interest I'm earning is directly linked to the interest I'm paying and the interest I'm paying is is being increased on me because interest rates are going up, then I want that link. I want to earn more as a result of paying more. Whereas when interest rates are, are going down, then the opposite is true, right? I'm happy to pay less interest and, and continue earning the higher dividend. And, uh, and mm -hmm. so in that case, non-direct is better. Mm -hmm. Problem is you can't flip the switch back and forth. Oh, now I want direct. Now I want non-direct. You're picking a policy. You're going to be in that policy the rest of your life, the rest of your life. And so you have to decide. So, okay, great. Now, Rod, well, then how do I decide? And the answer is don't decide based on direct versus non-direct. Like that is not the end all be all. That is not the decision point. Let's actually look at the entirety of the policy and make our decisions based on like, what, what can I build in terms of cash value? What can I expect from the company? What, et cetera. So uh, don't let yourself, when we say we don't do infinite banking, one of the reasons why we are so um, like putting ourselves against them is it creates these types of rabbit holes that are totally unnecessary and not helping you if your focus is on creating value in the way that we describe the investment optimizer. So basically, uh, and this was the point I was getting at before, our analysis suggests that the policy's cash value growth is a lot more important than whether I can get potential arbitrage, which again, to your point, I might be getting it, right? Like mm -hmm. if it's a guarantee, that might be different, but I might be getting it. But here's the deal. Even if I am getting it, it doesn't make up for, at least in the the, the situations we've seen, the best cash value, co the companies that are growing the highest cash value 
are still creating more value than what you're getting by having non-direct recognition, even if it's in your favor the entire time. And that's a big difference. Huge yep. difference. Um, okay. I want to talk about loans before we, we're, we're going to finish up here pretty quick, but I want to make sure we talk about loans because one of the issues, and we, we may have hit on this kind of a little bit in our, when we were kind of poking holes in IUL, but one of the issues is, is IUL can blow up, right? Whole life is more, uh, more stable. And I hear the, I've heard that, that kind of messaging out there from the whole lifers, like it's safe, it's secure. We don't have to worry about it. Uh, this is the big one, phantom income, phantom income, right? So which one of you wants to talk about how loans work in life insurance, phantom income potentially being a problem, although it's a problem in both policies, ironically, or could be, no. but who wants to take that on? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So when uh, when we talk about using life insurance, especially when we're using life insurance uh, for income in retirement, but in this case, for inf for infinite banking, if I'm always not always, but I'm I tend to push my the limit up to the upper limits of how much I can get as a loan. I can push it to a place where, uh, again, especially if I'm never paying off that loan, right? If that if that's the message I'm hearing is you can take the loan and don't ever pay it off. Okay, so this is important: a loan that you can that you don't have to pay off. How in the world does that exist? Perfect. Okay, so. Our uh, the cash value inside the life insurance policy is acting as collateral for the loan, so it doesn't go anywhere when I take the loan. It stays there, continues to grow and compound. But I took the loan, and uh, and I'm accruing interest on the loan. Right, the insurance company gives me the choice: Do I want to pay the interest? They'll, they'll send me a bill. Right, each year on my anniversary, they're going to send. With my annual bill, they're going to say, hey, you have an, a loan balance of this much. Therefore, your interest is this much. And I, I can pay that. But if I don't, then all they're going to do is just capitalize that interest on top of the loan. Now I carry forward with a, a higher loan balance. But there are no penalties. They're not, there aren't any additional problems with that. It's just that I now have compounding interest on my loan side. But I also have compounding interest on my cash value side. So that's how it creates that scenario. And especially, again, because this they, they paint this picture of always having this positive interest rate arbitrage, my asset is always going to be outpacing the interest on the loan. So no big deal, right? So and the eventuality is that the loan is repaid by the death benefit. Right? Yes. So it becomes self-fulfilling in the sense that as long as my policy is enforced, the death benefit comes in, makes a whole, they pay off the whatever the loan amount is, and the rest goes to my to my heirs. Right. Yep. With income tax-free dollars, um, so all yeah. the tax so, part of it gets gets resolved. So one of the things that I've been hearing is that like like that the IUL world is too aggressive with the retirement, like the retirement income side of IULs, right? And that in reality, like there's a lot of potential for blowing. I'll say this. One is that's true if the policies aren't built appropriately for that purpose, right? Again, if they're max funded, even the policies that we were seeing from the 80s did fine if they were funded in that manner. Mm -hmm. it, was, mm -hmm. it was problematic when it's minimum funded. And the reality is, is like if there's any messaging, right, like this is this is – Kind of an interesting one because a lot of people won't quite know what we're talking about here. But when we put premium into a policy, there's a base premium or like a premium that is just paying for the death benefit. It does build some cash, but it's just a minimum that the insurance company says needs to happen in order to get things going. And then there's this significant additional money that we can put into it. What we're suggesting is, is that we want to get to that significant additional money. And by doing that, most of these policies will work out really well if they're then used for the appropriate purpose, okay? So as an example, an IUL can be extremely appropriate for creating retirement income for the same reasons that it's not appropriate for as appropriate for infinite banking. We talked about how it has, um, has surrender charges, which just less access to money. Well, if I have less access, that's a problem if I need to go take loans immediately. That's not a problem if I'm planning to take that as income at a future point in time, okay? Uh, the other problem I've heard people say, actually, one of the, the solutions to this 
hey, my my policy will never blow up. Actually, let me back up a second. So let's say I'm taking income. The whole lifers would say, hey, there's the, one of the big concerns is, is you take too much income out of the IUL, the policy blows up. The response to that from the IUL crowd would be like, well, it's okay because we've got this overloan protection rider thing that's like super cool and, and will jump in and help us if that if that situation comes up, which by the way, I love the overloan protection rider. I think it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'll just describe what it is. It basically is a mechani- a mechanism within life insurance policy that turns your policy into kind of a reduced, paid up, small, small death benefit policy once you've maxed out loans. Okay, so then the the whole lifers would come back to the IULers and say, well, that's great, but that thing doesn't even kick in till you're 70 years old, mm-hmm. right? And then the IULers would probably come back and say, well, if it's running out before 70, you've definitely built the problem. You've built built the policy wrong or you've taken, you know, you just haven't, hopefully you've done everything wrong. Um, did I cover, did I cover loans and overloan protection rider on that? Anything yeah, you guys want to hit on? Just on, because you mentioned phantom income earlier. So let's talk about Please, the result yes. if, if it does go awry. Because Thank if you. I, if I ended up taking too much loan out and, and it may trigger my policy to, to lapse or in other words, if I if my loan balance ever gets as high as my cash value balance, then that would the, the insurance company never wants it to, to get too far. So they would call the loan, use your cash value to pay off that loan. Now your policy went away. Mm-hmm. So it's been surrendered. You no longer have a death benefit. The policy is no longer in existence. Yep. You do have a gift though. <laughs> from the IRS. <laughs> so at the end of that year, the insurance company is going to now send you a, a 1099. Well, why a 1099? Because you have cash value in your policy. It did grow above and beyond what you had originally put in. And if you were to, to have taken that out as a withdrawal, your you would have been taxed on whatever the growth was at ordinary income rates, Right. Well, but you didn't take a withdrawal, right? Well, then why? Well, because you you basically did. You took when when the insurance company triggered that, uh, calling the loan that I described a minute ago, using the cash value to pay off the loan. Essentially, that's what you did. You withdrew your cash and used it to pay off that loan. So now you have all of this growth in your policy that you were, didn't pay income on when you were taking income as a loan. But now all of a sudden, all of that becomes due. So if you have whatever a million dollars in your cash value off of the original 250000 that you had put in and you pulled all that income out, you pulled out, quote unquote, too much, then and that triggered that the policy to surrender. Now you're going to get a 1099 at the end of that year for $750,000 of growth that is now taxable at ordinary income rates, but you already spent the money. Yeah. So right. th- and that so yeah. So now all of a sudden you're having to come up with that money for like whatever the taxes do on that, which by the way could also increase uh, increase your overall tax bracket and suddenly you've created a real mess. So yeah. the moral of this story is that has to be planned and prepared. You just have to make sure that's never in play. There's mm-hmm. really simple ways to do that, right? The best way is to one, make sure that you fund the policy appropriately and then two, you're just watching the way that you pull money out on the back end. And by doing those things, you can like really easily mitigate that. But but that is a problem. And again, the whole lifers would say, like, by using it in that way, which is ironic because the same thing applies in the infinite banking world, just in a little bit different methodology, right? Yeah. I could have done, I could be an infinite banker for 20 years and then have the problem come up that you mentioned, Rod, where I have like maxed out my loans for whatever reason and suddenly I'm in the exact same situation. Yeah. Well, um, so can I hit on something really quickly? Please. Because they would say, well, how did that happen? If you're telling me that my cash value always grows and outpaces the the loan rate, how did that ever happen that my, uh, that my loan rate ever caught up to my cash value? Well, here's what happens. And this is, again, this there's a, a big misnomer out there about, well, IUL has all these increasing costs and whatever. The fact is, all insurance has increasing costs. So as you get older, whether you have IUL or whether you have whole life or whether you have annual renewable term or any other life insurance, as the older we get, the more expensive the insurance gets. So how does that, how could it ever happen that the the loan balance ever gets to be as big is because 
uh, again, let's, I'm going to use whole life as an example, because this is the supposedly the whole lifers out there would tell you this is only an IUL problem, but it, 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 this problem exists in whole, whole life as well. If the insurance company is offering me up to 95% of my cash value in loans, well, there's that 5% buffer. I'm all, that's always going to exist, right? Well, it doesn't exist if I am perpetually maxing up against that 95% line and then I get into my older years and the cost of insurance is getting higher and eating away at, at that cash value. So in other words, is my cash value growing? Yes. But are the costs against that getting higher? Yes. And so it actually does create a situation where if I'm always maxing out those loans and always taking out whatever I can, then I could push myself to a place where that loan balance does increase and get to the point to equal my cash value. Okay. So maybe the question is, since that's such a, there, that is, you made that sound really negative, Rod. I'm not excited about, nobody wants to get into the phantom income situation. Can I also nope. just tell you this? Uh, to your point, IULers, uh, or sorry, the whole lifers are, are more attacking the IUL crowd about the phantom income thing. Yep. Having yep. said that, the the first policy that I ever saw that had the phantom income problem was very much a whole life policy. So like mm -hmm. it can happen regardless of which. And I think what I hope is what I hope is happening here is like th that anybody who's listening to this is see is seeing that each of them have their really positive beneficial points, but they also have some drawbacks. And so it's not a matter of saying this one's all good and this one's all bad or vice versa. It's a matter of matching the positive strengths that they create with the strategy that helps us create more value and wealth. Um, okay, Whew, there's there's a lot there. Is there anything else we want to hit on on loans? We cover that. Okay. Uh, man, I think I think I'm good. I think we covered it. Okay, so let's finish off by just talking about a few of the positive, important uses of life insurance uh, because. Throughout the episode, obviously, we've talked about like the value proposition that exists there, but we focused most of our time really poking holes in what what the IUL crowd, what the whole life crowd, what the infinite banking, like that's been the majority of our time. Let's just finish off by talking about some really important, valuable things that life insurance does for us. So I've got a list of 10. You guys can add to if you have anything else. Uh, first thing, first and foremost, protecting your family. Uh, I said this before, my dad was 49 when he died of pancreatic cancer. His policy was a term insurance policy and it paid out and it allowed my mom to have financial security for the rest of her life. So first and foremost, life insurance is valuable to protect your family. The second one I have is that it's incredibly valuable for improving investment returns. And the reason I put it second is because once you kind of make that shift, like the paradigm shift from saying like, okay, I'm going from the accumulation, know your numbers or like uh, philosophy, and I move over to this, like, I'm going to create the value. I'm going to get into the alternative investment space. Basically, anybody that has made that shift will get massive value from using life insurance as a way to replace an opportunity fund, right? Like it just makes a huge difference over time. And it ends up being a no brainer because not only do I get the better return on my money, I get the death benefit, I get some asset protection, I get these other things that are um, creating valuable and or value and allowing me to multi-purpose every one of my dollars. Um, okay, the third one I have is creating tax-free income. Um, we think this is a huge value proposition. That's why we talk about capital avalanche. Um, it's incredibly valuable for as like your emergency fund, right? I just think of it if you're if you're somebody that's holding a bunch of cash in a, a bank account, if you can over time transition to that into a, po a properly uh, built policy, suddenly you're generating five percent, five six percent on it instead of generating you know next to nothing. Um, I think it's a really good alternative to bonds. What do you guys think of that one? Is it an alternative to bonds? Yeah, I think it's it's much more stable mm -hmm. than bonds for sure. And so uh, if you just say, "Hey, I'm I I want to have something that has a consistent growth rate on it," and and you're someone who traditionally has looked at bonds, then it, it might be worth looking at this because when you know for 10-15 years when bond rates were at two percent, you were earning five. Now, admittedly, right now 
or, or you know, the last 18 months, you could have had bonds that were paying higher than the than the you know five plus percent that we talked about. Um, but on average, if you just want to earn more or have more, more consistency with that, then I, I agree with that. And then of course, more availability, right? So, yeah. so yep. it can, again, multi-purpose. If my money's in a bond, I don't have access to that and I can't earn interest. Whereas I can have this be my, my high interest uh, emergency account fund while also being a really great um, alternative to bonds. And it could be my uncorrelated asset to the market if I'm a more traditional investor. Yep. Um, it's incredibly valuable for optimizing your estate plan. I always say this, life insurance is, is the most effective. Um, it's the best money that can pass on from one generation to the next, right? Real estate's yep. probably second, but life insurance from my perspective is unquestionably the best. It's incredibly valuable for like business planning, things like buy-sell agreements. We talk about deferred comp plans, defined benefit plans. And then I wrote finally specialty strategies, like things we've gotten into in the past, captive, restricted property trust, bank on life insurance, all of these things. My, my point here is just to suggest that life insurance um, as an asset, life insurance as a tool to continue to build and help us grow our wealth is an unbelievably powerful tool. I just love your point, Blake. It's not the way that, it's not what's creating the most value our investment, our returns, like investing in ourself and our business and our and our assets, that's what's really creating the, tr the return. And so if you get nothing else from the pod, this three-part pod, we hope that you'll walk away feeling like life insurance isn't the end-all be-all. It's not, again, it's not one's better than the other. It is just a tool inside our uh, tool belt that we can use to create massive um, additional benefit to the growth that we're already doing. And the thing I love about that is that it doesn't matter how you invest. It, it can do that for everything. So if you, uh, if you hear what we talk about in the alternative world and you're like, that's just never going to be me. I'm just always going to still invest in the, in, in the, uh, traditional space. And I'm this, this kind of nest egg idea of accumulating enough wealth to where I can live off of that for the rest of my life. Well, guess what? Life insurance can make that planning better too, right? If you've yeah, never heard of a guy named Wade Fow, P-F-A-U is the way he spells his last name. Him, He's a college professor who did a, a long-term study and basically came out to say that some combination of stock market, annuities, and life insurance, if you're on that tra traditional track, it's still the combination of those three tools that are the best combination to create a positive outcome in, in your retirement. So uh, whether you're on the alternative space or not, life insurance should be a piece of your long-term planning. Blake, final thoughts? Hopefully this wasn't three strikes and you're out. I know that's how you introduced <laughs> me, but uh, no, this has been fun. Glad we got to do it. I love it. Okay, thanks everybody for hanging out with us. Man, this has been a marathon. Uh, but we hope you've enjoyed it and uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Money Insights Podcast. To learn more about the financial and business strategies discussed in this show, please visit moneyinsights.net. The views and opinions expressed on the Money Insights Podcast are not intended to be individual financial, tax, or legal advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making financial decisions. And if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This will help others find the show and learn wealth-building strategies for themselves. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you in the next episode.